Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein. I'm so excited you're here. You're going to love this episode because it combines everything that I'm all about. It is about audiology, but also about the specific challenges of parenting a child with a hearing loss. I have a special guest for you today. Her name is Aviva Werner, and she has a lot of experience and knowledge and expertise in parenting and a lot of wisdom to share with us. I I really am excited for you guys to hear the conversation that I had with her, and I definitely would like to send you over to avivawardner.com to learn about her parenting leadership services. You'll also have the link in the description, in the transcripts. There's always full transcripts of every episode at allaboutaudiology.com. So let's jump right into the interview and welcome Aviva. Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and today on the podcast, we are talking about parents and the importance of parents' intuition when it comes to anything having to do, I mean, in general, medically, but specifically in audiology. And I have a special guest with me today, uh, Mother Par Excellence, and she will introduce herself. Welcome, Aviva. Hi, Lilach. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Aviva Werner. I am, I don't know about the mother par excellence part, but I am a mother. (laughs) And like all mothers, I'm just trying to do my best every day. And I've been blessed with a number of children. My youngest two do have special needs. And in regards to the hearing issue, I have a seven-year-old who we've been dealing with, a seven-year-old with Down syndrome specifically. And I also have a three-year-old who has Down syndrome. So we have been dealing with hearing issues. Okay. So can I ask you, before either of them had were dealing with any of this, um, what did you know about audiology? Had you heard of audiology at all? Like what was, what did you know before all this became a big part of your life? Very theoretically, I'm a pretty well educated person. So of course I knew about audiology, but about the specifics, I didn't have any reason to know about anything more specifically because none of my kids needed that kind of help and because it's not my specific area of specialty. So, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that speaks to a greater point that, I mean, even that's why I'm asking, because mo- a lot of people, if they never had to deal with it, they really don't know, unless maybe they have a grandparent who has hearing loss, someone in the family or something like that. But audiology is really not front and center in people's minds until it has to be. Right. Until so, you need it, I don't need it. Yeah. Okay. And so then tell us, um, when did it come up? What's the, uh, the timeline? Well, because my baby had Down syndrome, right away he was tested at birth, and then we had it was recommended to continue testing him because children with Down syndrome often have hearing loss. And this I knew was going to be very important to me because hearing clearly leads to, it's very important in speaking clearly. And speaking clearly is a sign of intelligence. And if you speak unclearly, people assume that you're not as intelligent. So I felt from the time he was a very young infant, this was something important to me to stay on top of. However, um, that is not necessarily what happened. I did do regular testing when he was an infant, repeatedly showed his hearing was fine. Um, the hearing test under sedation, everything was tested and it was great. Somewhere along the way, I didn't continue with the hearing test. I think because I was just so busy with so many other medical things, many medical issues, many things being tested, therapies, dealing with my other nine children at the time. He also was born less than a year after having made Aliyah. So we were in a new country. 
dealing with a new language, living in, I was living in the north at the time, very unsupportive doctors and traveling all over to different cities for every kind of appointment. So it's pretty hectic, pretty harrowing at times. And so when it seemed like the hearing thing was fine, I didn't feel the need to keep pushing and pushing. And at a certain point when he was about four, we did a hearing test which showed he had some hearing loss. And at that point I was told, so I said to the technicians, to the audiologist doing the testing, so what do we do now? And she said, well, it's mild. You don't do anything. That doesn't need to be treated. And I was actually happy to believe her. I was happy to let that be true because there were so many other things to deal with in life that I was happy for that to be the case. In any case, I took the findings to our ENT, who's excellent and considered really the top here in the country. And he looked at me and he said, what did the audiologist say? And I told him, well, she said that um, since his hearing was fine as a newborn when it was tested in that way, it's probably fine now and we don't need to treat it. So I said, okay, that makes sense to me. Do you know at the time if they were talking about sensory neural hearing loss or conductive hearing loss? Like where in the ear the issue was? <laughs> you know, I really don't know. I don't remember now because that was about three years ago. So, yeah. right. The reason I'm asking again is because were they saying, oh, this looks like maybe just fluid or something that might clear up? Or did they, were, did they also do bone conduction testing at the time? I know it's like getting technical, but I'm just wondering. They do the bone conduction testing. Um, and I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember. Even now I feel this is something I'm not really, I don't feel very confident and I can tell you that I read the hearing test well and I can tell you the results. I, so I don't know. It was tested and they said, well, this area, whatever the question was, whichever of those it was that you asked about, was well since, and I believe it was conductive, but I may be mistaken, since it was fine when he was a baby, probably nothing's happening and he's probably not responding well to the testing. That was the assumption. And about two years, a year and a half later, I did the next test. And by the way, in the next year and a half, when he went to speech therapist, he had two or maybe even three different speech therapists in the next year and a half. And each of them asked because he had very, very delayed speeches. The quality of his speech, the words were great. The vocabulary and the ideas he expressed were excellent. But it was so unclear that it really wasn't excellent. And it was not. Most people just couldn't understand him. Even family members really had to work. And we knew that he didn't start talking until he was five. I remember when he was little, I used to just wonder. So that was, he was not even speaking by the time we had that hearing test when he was four and a half. And when he was five was when he first started saying his first words. We went to a new speech therapist, and of course they asked about his history. And of course they asked about his hearing. Have you had his hearing checked? So I responded with all the past tests and the comments of the recent audiologist. And she said, well, that makes sense to me. And what did the ENT said? And I said, well, the audiologist said this, and the ENT said this, and here are the results. And she said, okay. And again, honestly, I was happy that everyone was agreeing that he didn't need it because who wants your child to need hearing aids? You want to know that's just like a little thing. I did not understand that what mild hearing loss meant in terms of what he wasn't hearing. And that was really, anyway, and I was relying on these people, on the audiologist, on the ENT, on the speech therapist, on the next speech therapist, who the next speech therapist also had checked. And later when she found out, she was flagellating herself, but she said, I can't believe it. I can't believe I missed it. Because she had the test results in front of her, and it was, you know, this was her, this was her training. And she very, very badly that there was this hearing loss that 
has just gone undiscovered. We were very fortunate when he was six, he went into a school who's an excellent speech therapist. She said to me, and we had done a hearing test right before the school year, you know, so I would have the fresh hearing test. Again, it showed a mild to moderate hearing loss. This time, I'm really so grateful to this speech therapist. She's the one who said to me, this is serious and it needs to be taken care of. I went to the ENT, who again, was really not convinced, and um, he sent me for another hearing test. We spent another year going for hearing tests, repeated hearing tests, repeated hearing tests, because he wanted to see consistently we have the same results. He was an appointment with, so it took months to get appointments. It was very, very challenging. There was a big time lag. I was on top of it. I was making appointments as fast as I could, but there was just the logistics of the healthcare system here and the appointments and stuff. In time, this speech therapist caught on to something realized and she said do you feel like he doesn't hear things and I said no he's very responsive I really don't see that at all and she said to me I think he's reading lips I think he's compensating to a very high level and when she said that all of a sudden I felt sick because I remembered when he was a little child and I had these flashcards that I made, you know, big flashcards by like half of an eight and a half by 11. On one side, there was a picture. On the other side was the word. And I would hold them up and I would say, rabbit. And I'd turn down and show him the picture of the rabbit and show him the word. And his eyes would go to my mouth. And I always thought, why is he looking at my face? And sometimes I would move the flashcard over my lips so he would look at the word because that's what I wanted him to see. As soon as the speech therapist told me that, I just had this pit in my stomach and I thought, oh my goodness, he is reading lips. And she said to me, you can test it. Look at him when it's dark in the evening and see what happens. And I did it that evening and it was clear right away. And I was kind of horrified just thinking about, you know, when you're able to connect the dots like that, looking back, it's 2020. But when you're in it, and everything's just, you know, day to day. We get that. Right, <laughs> right. So I am very grateful. I really will always be grateful to the speech therapist wow. because she's the one who saw it and she didn't explain it away and say, well, kids with Down syndrome, they have hearing issues. Kids with Down syndrome don't speak clearly. Kids with Down syndrome don't, don't understand. She's the one who said to me, your son is very bright. And the way he's, his lags, she said, are not typical of a child with Down syndrome. His lags are typical of a child with a hearing yes, loss. Yes. I remember that line exactly in, in school where the uh, professor said, just because it's more, more common and more likely among this population doesn't mean we shouldn't treat it. And uh, I just like remembered that line. And then I read your post, your story, and I said, this, this, is, this is what happens when, when, you know, sometimes the healthcare look at one thing and then, but I also think, you know, you mentioned that you moved countries and then also you moved within Israel different cities and the way that the whole appointment system goes here where it can be months from when you make an appointment to when you get in and because if there was something conductive like middle ear fluid or something like that you do want to see that it's sticking around and not like a fleeting thing so there's like a small um I don't know like uh, comfort in knowing that like not everybody necessarily meant harm along this this line like there is a, a small place where it's like okay we can wait to see what happens and oh it's a new case again it's a new case again to all the new people but um, 
in no way, shape, or form is a mild hearing loss not important, even though it's called mild. Um, that's a very important point and something that I think our listeners really um, would, will appreciate. And it's something that I talk about a lot, the idea that understanding what the diagnosis is, is like prerequisite step number one for everything. Because even knowing is it conductive versus sensory neural is a pretty important thing and actually something that I offer people that I review their documents and all of the test results to really get a good grasp of what it is. And then also the degree, like mild, moderate, moderately severe, profound. Um, All of these are extremely different in how the person then interacts and communicates with the world. So even a mild hearing loss, let's talk a little bit about um, how does it play out? Like you're saying, difficulty hearing when they're not getting also visual reinforcement. So if it's dark, the person is far away or they can't see them. If it's a noisy room, once there's noise in there, then it's super hard to take out the signal. And the mild hearing loss also um, means that the softest sounds of speech are being missed. And the softest sounds of speech are usually those S's at the end of sounds or um, the high frequency consonants like TH or the letter F. And these are super important for speech development and communication. So tell us more about how, how it presented in your son. Well, as I said, I wasn't really noticing it originally as a speech delay. Um, I'm sorry, there was a speech delay, but not, I wasn't recognizing it was due to hearing. But there was always a lag when we would say something, and I thought it was a processing issue. It was processing slowly, that we would say something and he would take a moment. And then I recognized afterwards, he was trying to figure out what had just been said, you know, to fill in the missing information that he didn't hear. And again, he comes. To think how, how, like you said, how bright he is and how hard he had to work. Yeah, That is really the heartbreaking part because you take a child who already has a disability, who already has to work very hard. He's growing up in an English-speaking house, then I put him into school. He was homeschooled until age six. And the reason that was relevant for his hearing loss is because in the home environment, he performed great. I spoke clearly. I looked directly at him. There wasn't lots of background noise. So we weren't seeing, I don't feel like he was missing all the things you'd be missing in the classroom environment because he could hear pretty well. He could compensate very well. In the classroom environment, when I recognized how much he was not hearing, it was a bit heartbreaking. Here's a child who is going in as a six-year-old, trying to learn the language, not being able to communicate because he doesn't have Hebrew yet, and really struggling to learn the language because he's not hearing a lot. So... It was quite emotional for me when we first got hearing aids and we brought them home. I sat with him the very first time. Not that hearing aids is an easy story for us. It has not. But the first time I sat down with him, they said, start. I may be skipping ahead if you have questions in between. That's fine. But they said, sit down for an hour. You know, once he finally got approved, there was a whole process until that happened. It was a really long time. We sat down and... The only way to get him to keep them in was to keep him very occupied. So I was sitting and playing games with him and talking very interactively with him. And we were playing kind of like a word game. And he said, remember I said, um, we were doing a reading game. So he said, dad. So he said to me, like, daddy. Now, he has never said daddy in his life. He said, daddy. He skips the middle D. And I, my eyes just filled with tears. And I thought, 
he has never been able to hear it clearly enough to say that. He didn't even realize he said something different. And we were, as we played this game, he said a few other words that he had never said. And this was not speech therapy. I wasn't practicing with him. He just naturally said things properly. And it was really like, wow, it just hit me. Like He really has not been able to hear. It hit me very emotionally, just seeing the difference. Of course, intellectually, I already realized there was something going on. But to hear from like one minute to like the next minute with the hearing aids in and the hearing aids out, it was just very, very striking. Wow. And what was the process like when, sorry, go ahead. I would love to say, and it was so wonderful from then on, and he happily wore his hearing aids and spoke perfectly all the time, but that has not been our experience. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. When you, when you said, okay, we at, we're, we're going to get hearing aids, this is the treatment that needs to come up, what was, you know, what was the next steps? What was the reaction of, for you and for maybe other people in the household, for him himself? What was, how was that received? It was really fine from the time in August when he was six years old that I did this first test until he got approved and we had over a year of repeated hearing tests. And finally, I just switched to a different doctor because I said, I just need the approval. I can't wait three more months just for a final approval. Um, I had a lot of time to process. It wasn't like they said there was a hearing loss and one month later we were getting fitted for hearing aids. There was a lot of time and at that time I just felt like more and more, of course, no one wants your child to have any kind of disability or challenge or anything that makes them look different or feel different. But what we want most of all are our kids to function effectively in the world. And so it wasn't really a big deal for me that he had hearing aids. I wanted them. As soon as I knew there was that, that hearing loss, immediately I, was, I said, I want him aided. He needs it. Like, I really wanted it pushing. And it, I had to do a lot of because... Pushing doesn't get anything done faster here. I could, I had to learn to say, okay, I'm staying on top of it and I'm not gonna get stressed and I'm not gonna get frustrated that my child needs this hearing support and there's this bureaucratic system that's denying that being, because I felt like I just wanted to make up for lost time. When I thought about having known a year and a half earlier, not having done anything, I just wanted to remediate that loss right away so he wouldn't have any more. And the fact that here we are almost a year and a half after that hearing test, and we're still not there yet, it's just, there's a lot of acceptance as a parent, I think, for me, that I have to find and say, this is just part of the journey, and it's okay. It's okay that it's imperfect, and we're just doing the best we can. That's right. And there's absolutely no way to know how the story would have been different. Would things have gone a different way, and would have, you know, because... There, there are a hundred other factors that would have affected the story that way. Like everyone has their own journey. And we hear from, from parents who, like you said, you know, they have the diagnosis maybe like at weeks old when their baby is so, so tiny. And then now they have to like look at their teeny tiny infant that they just brought home and they're still like getting over the whirlwind of having a baby. And meanwhile, they're dealing with like surgeries and or whatever else. So like, no matter where you come in in the story, there's a big process that goes after that. Yes, and what I was going to add there is that for me, it's important for me not to say, oh, to focus on what if, where would he have been? How could we have avoided and say, but look what we did. We did so many things so well. 
we not just we did the best we could, we did a lot of things really well. He's doing remarkably well. He's a very happy, very healthy, well-integrated child who has unclear speech. But he has great self-esteem, and he is really smart and really bright and has friends and loves to learn, and he's just done really, really well. So I have to like say, okay, let it go. All right? You could say I dropped the ball. You could look for other people to blame, but I was more more inclined to blame myself and say, I dropped the ball, I dropped the ball. How could I have dropped the ball? I knew this from the time he was an infant. I knew how important hearing was for intelligibility and for being perceived by others as intelligent. And I just had to say, there has to be humility as a parent, what you say. Humility and forgiveness of yourself. We do the best we can. And if we were meant to do better, we would have done better. If we could have done better, we would have done better. We're doing, everybody, we're all doing the best we can right now. And that's all our kids need, is for us to do the best we can. Even though sometimes it feels like it's not enough. Sometimes it feels like, but I wish I knew more, and I wish I'd do better, and just beat yourself up over the head again and again with that hammer. Just we are where we are today, and we just have to move forward. It's, it's one of those um, huge things people say, you know, you would never talk to someone else like that. You know, if you saw another mom going through this story, you would never say to her, well, you missed it, lady. <laughs> like, no, you would not say that. You would totally look at her whole circumstance and understand that there were a lot of things going on. And professionals were telling you their professional advice, one after the other after the other. So, you know, I think that that is a helpful thing to sometimes look at yourself the way you would look at others, even though it is very hard. And when you start talking about that self-blame, that's like, Right there in the motherhood story. <laughs> you yeah. all recognize that, right? And I'm a parenting consultant. So I really hear other people's stories. And I really tell people this all the time. And I deeply believe it. You did the best you could. You did the best you could. Just forgive yourself and let it go move on. But wow, in ourselves, there's always that piece. It's just constantly, I have to constantly have awareness in myself and say, wait. Stop, it's not productive, the self-shame and the self-blame. And why we do it or whatever, it doesn't even matter. It just matters that it's not helping us. And I try, I want to be as kind to myself as I am to my clients, my neighbors, the grocery store clerk, the taxi driver, for sure my kids. And that is a job for all of us. We need to really just love and accept ourselves as we are is a journey of a lifetime. Can you tell me a little bit more about the parenting consulting you do? That's so interesting. Well, I work with clients from within Israel in person and over Skype and phone consultations for people outside of Israel. I really, people come to me actually for all sorts of issues. Initially, I started specializing with kids who are dealing with a lot of oppositional defiant behaviors. Um, Actually, I really wanted to focus on parents with teenagers because I felt they're a very underserved population. It's the population that has a lot, a lot of issues and they're not being addressed. But what I found is the parents felt like by the time they got to that age, they just had given up. They felt like there's no hope, we're resigned to it. So I found that most of my clients ended up coming at younger ages, which is actually really nice when you can help that child who's seven or nine or 11 with those significant traditionally the oppositional defiant stuff, a lot of behavioral issues, resistance, and help the parents learn. And it's part of the process for parents via their children, learning to love and appreciate their children where they are and reflect back the beauty in them, and then guide them appropriately. 
that place of just seeing that beautiful human being and dropping all the expectations. And along with the expectations of our kids, it's dropping the expectations of ourselves. How could I have, I remember someone said to me, I never thought I would have a child who was a monster. We know what kind of parents have those children, right? Like the temper tantrums in the store and breaking things and going wild. It's not going to be us. And then these parents have those kids and kind of shatters a bit of their self-image. And so learn. it's not just telling people, well, this is how you get your child. Everyone wants me to tell them, how do you get your child to act the way they want him to? It's not about that. It's about building a relationship building trust, building healthy communication, communicating to your child really their deep worth and value and their potential, believing in that potential. And that is what I tell people all the time. You've got to believe in their potential, especially the times when you don't see it, especially when it's the hardest. That's when they need our them the most. And then after you've got that, that emotional connection, then you can start to guide your children and make suggestions. But they're not interested in what you're going to say. They're not interested in your feedback. They're for sure not interested in your corrections of their behavior because they feel the same as us. If we could have done better, we would have done better. If our kids could do better, they would do better. They are all, even these kids who are completely out of control, they're actually all really doing the best they can with the skills they have and the tool set, the skill set and the tools they have. They're doing the best they can to manage life. And sometimes it doesn't look good enough to us, but we have to remember, we all want to be successful. We're all trying to be successful every day in every situation. And if sometimes it looks like we're failing, well, our skill set is just not up to that situation. Maybe I'm overtired, you know, maybe I got up at four in the morning, I was up two times in the night with a sick child. And so I'm not up for being and kind and reflective of my child, you know, and they're having trouble transitioning and acting out. Because I'm tired and my limits that are not being, I'm not being nurtured. So, you know, the same person, we all have differing skill levels at times. But that doesn't mean on my day when I'm tired and grumpy, I'm doing my best when I'm tired and grumpy, even though it looks really bad. That is me doing my best in that day with the challenges that I'm feeling. With the resources you have. Yep. Exactly. So tell me more about how your experience with the work that you do, which is supporting other families with, with you know, the challenges that they're going through, how, how that's affected your relationship with your son specifically, but, you know, all the rest of them. It really goes the opposite. My work came as a result of my work with my family first. It really very naturally evolved. We have a large family. We have 11 children. My oldest is 26, and my youngest will be three in a month. And my first 10 children are biological. My child with Down syndrome was my 10th child. My 11th child is completely a child of my heart, of all of our hearts, but I did not give birth to him. Someone else had that pleasure, and we took him home from the hospital when he was two months old. So he had been um, left there by his parents, who I don't want to get into that, but unfortunately, very common in Israel uh, for babies with Down syndrome to be advised not to bring them home. So our baby was one of those, and our family has been very blessed by having him come into our life. So that is, um, gosh, it feels like I unfairly weighted it to the younger side, right, without talking about all my older wonderful children. But going backwards, I have homeschooled my children. I'm homeschooling for 19 years now. So going way back, I people used to say, oh, your kids are so well-behaved, and 
I felt in myself like a lot of conflict in myself and like it felt hard and I was constantly seeking better ways and better ways and better ways of communicating and I would read the books and I would and I felt like these books are not addressing my needs with five six I mean and at one point I had nine children homeschooling at a time but when I was reading the books I had a younger family and feeling like this this advice is not working for this amount of people this many interpersonal relationships this many responsibilities for me as a mother to keep the house running and keep everybody happy and be the homeschooling parent. It, it was just like, it was not helpful. I know. Sometimes I just think about the fact that everybody needs to eat, but three times a day. And it's like, it's just so unreasonable, right? Like, like, we eat eight hours do that. Yeah. And like, can't we feed them once a week and just keep them charged and full? That's a great idea. So yeah, um, just like that, the feeding responsibility alone, then you add laundry, then you add the housekeeping, and then it's like, oh yeah, they have to also have a soul that needs tending to at the end of that list, like, hmm, maybe it shouldn't be at the end. <laughs> so I always had this vision of having this family that was really harmonious, and I thought maybe that's just not possible. But that was the vision I kept working toward. And I kept seeking out materials and learning, and not all from parent resources. I found learning from in the leadership area, that's actually my business is leadership parenting. I found those ideas were really helpful to me. And it's just a lot of personal development, being a parent, isn't it? We're just constantly going and discovering things in ourselves and things in our children. So I started applying these ideas bit by bit. My kids were my guinea pigs. Some of my experiments were better than others. There are things I'm like, I'm really sorry <laughs> that I did that, you know, but fortunately it was a long time ago. My children are very forgiving. And as people started noticing these results with my kids and with my family. And they're like, wow, you guys just like being each other. Someone just came to Israel. Her, she had a family member who lived across the street and she said, well, you guys have a reputation. Like the family that like, they just love each other. And like, they sit around like, I think they must have come over one Shabbos afternoon. They just like sit around with their arms around each other singing. My kids afterwards said like, what? When do we do that? They do actually, but it's not all the time. Um, people just started asking me years ago, like, how are your kids like that? Like they just listen to you and they're not just listening because it wasn't about discipline. I once had someone came over as a very strong disciplinarian and she said, I cannot see what you're doing, why your kids listen to you. You're not threatening them, you don't yell at them, but like you just say something and they do it. And it was about the relationship. So really my work evolved from my family life. As more and more people asked me, and I said, okay, I really see there's something, I don't wanna say missing in the parenting arena, other people have said things that I've said, but there's so much focus on techniques and strategies and prize charts and sticky stars and and we sometimes forget about just the core of it maybe sometimes we don't even know the core is relationship 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 a child who feels better who feels loved who feels safe is a child who does much better it's going to respond much better to you so that's what i started doing in my own life and then it just kind of evolved professionally and i'm so grateful i now have a few married children i have a few grandchildren and it is beyond gratifying to see those adult children have their own lives and to watch them starting their parenting journey like 10 miles ahead of 
theirs is like natural to them, the way they talk and the way they act, and they're so loving and responsive and respectful of their spouses and of their, their each one has a child. And it's just beautiful. It's very, very beautiful. So, so that's how it's kind of. That's incredible. We have many, many parents listening to the podcast. Um, many of them have children with hearing loss or um, also people who are working with children who have hearing loss, speech therapists, teachers of the deaf, audiologists. And I think you're in a very unique position to give some loving words of wisdom and advice to our parents and our professionals. Please. <laughs> words of advice. Oh gosh, that's so hard. I'm putting you on the spot right there. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's really, it's really challenging. Okay, I can rephrase. I can say, I listen, if there's one thing that you would want someone to feel that they're not alone, that they have some sort of direction and hope, like what's the one maybe anchor thought or like affirmation or thing that they could hold on to to carry them through the, the challenges? Is that harder or easier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just such a long answer. I feel like for me, all my challenges have been having a relationship with whatever you call it, source, higher power, God. That is so primary to me that I believe everything happens for a reason, that there are no mistakes, that it wasn't a mistake, that all those professionals said what they said. I was meant to be right where I am. When my child, my first child with Down syndrome, my seven-year-old was born, the doctor said to me, was, I didn't know about it, it was a surprise diagnosis at birth, and they gathered these three experts, you know, from to deliver the news, they, they did it very carefully, and then I met again with three experts from three, three top departments, and they told us the news, and I, I responded whatever way I did, which was pretty calm, it really took me about 30 seconds to process. I was like, oh, okay, because I felt it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. A child is a child, and it doesn't, a diagnosis does not change that it's just a child. And so they said to me, we never had anyone respond like you. I guess people usually like, they treat you like you're a China doll and you're going to shatter into a million pieces on the floor. That's like, you can see it in their eyes and in their face and the way they, they're waiting for you to like collapse. And, and they said, we don't know what it is. Is it emuna? Is it faith? And I said, yes, we feel this child. I said, maybe, I don't know if it's faith, but I said for us, this child is a gift and is precious to us just like any other child. And so for me, my children with disabilities, I haven't looked at them any differently. Every child is just a child who needs the support that they need. I haven't seen such a thing as like any perfect child. My kids are all smart and bright and beautiful like all our kids, right? All kids are just essence and I had are beautiful and perfect in their essence they really are and I the since this was my 10th child when I got this news and I thought I've been through enough challenges as a parent because that's what happens our kids aren't all born with exactly the personality that matches us and every child challenges us challenges us to grow in a different way and I told you I had that was my 10th child, right? So I had plenty of challenges. And I thought, okay, we know all these other kids were, quote, born, quote, normal. I hate that term, normal, but normal. But they didn't, did that stop them from having life challenges and things they had to go through? Absolutely not. And I thought, okay, so he's going to have his challenges. 
and some of them are going to come with having Down syndrome, and some of them are going to come from just being a human on this planet, facing things that you don't yet have the skills to know how to deal with, and he's going to have to learn to deal with that just like I do. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, it's incredible that you're talking about this, because it's like this, when that thing happens, when the same message comes at you a few times, and you're like, okay, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> Our previous uh, guest on the podcast, um, Elaine Matlow from AV Israel was talking about auditory verbal therapy and children who get cochlear implants and then um, have to really have this whole uh, parent-centered, family-centered approach to developing speech after cochlear implantation. She was talking about how, you know, just because someone has a diagnosis or, you know, a different kind of journey for, for their communication and development doesn't mean that they get like a, a pass for uh, like a, a monopoly on isolation. Like not only deaf children have isolation, children who have hearing sometimes struggle with being isolated and not included and bullying and like all these things. And it's, it's like a matter of, do you make the connection with the problem is connected to the hearing? This other problem is connected. Like, is it behavioral? Is it relational? And then everything goes back to the diagnosis. Or, like you said, maybe it could have been there regardless of this other diagnosis or challenge or issue. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's it's just like one of those things. We all have problems. Hey, hey. <laughs> Surprise, surprise, like welcome to reality. <laughs> but sometimes, nevertheless, when it's a, a specific kind of field and then there are meant to be people who are experts in that field who can then guide you and you know give you good recommendations and do proper diagnosis and provide proper treatment. Um, and when that doesn't go the way it's meant to, quote unquote, or it's expected to, then that that probably also takes like some of the faith away from the the system from those professionals so i wonder if if that's something that you still kind of feel about in general like medicine cuz you know the the idea of trusting the medical establishment um how you feel about that i feel this might not be the answer you're thinking of but i feel it kind of ties into what i was talking about before which is it's not them. It looks like it's them and I can blame them, but this is where I was meant to be in this situation. And so I don't want to blame myself and I don't want to blame them. I want to say we were all just doing the best we could. Having said that, I'm very proactive in terms of, I have been for many years researching alternative health, which is also why I was so hard on myself. Like, you know this, you know this. I expect myself to know a lot of things. I expect myself to be in a way that's not possible, you know, when my baby was born, I think within two days they switched me to a ward where they had uh, Wi-Fi, and I had my husband bring me a laptop. I spent hours, for, I don't know, the first year he was born, I was deep in biochemical research, understanding the biochemistry of Down syndrome and how that affects every different pathway in the body. So what do you do with that? I mean, there are things you can do with that, but I like to learn. I like to understand sometimes that means you're on the cutting edge that the doctors don't yet know what you know, you know, from spending, because I can spend all these many hours on specialized knowledge that typical pediatrician, why would they be reading that? They wouldn't. And that has happened. That has definitely happened. I'm very careful that I'm very appreciative of our medical professionals and I'm very respectful of them. And I don't feel it makes them less for me to know that 
there are things that I know and there are things that they know. And we're a team and we work together. I am very careful not to step on their toes because it is it would be kind of hard for them not to be insulted, right? If I came along with like a chip on my shoulder, like I've been researching for hours, you know, for like hundreds of hours and I know all about this and you don't. And that's not helpful. It's totally not helpful. So I try to do the best that I can and I try to work with my care providers as I best can. And I try to be forgiving of all of us that we are where we are because they're going back to the God part. And that is so big for me when I get frustrated about how can it be and why can it be and why didn't they do something different and why didn't I do something different? Just take a deep breath and stop. It's okay. It's process. It's not bad. We are just, you could say it's bad. What do you mean? My child, he probably should have had hearing aids three years ago. And when I see those little kids, my almost three-year-old is in a class and there's some kids with Down, other kids with Down syndrome there. And I see them walking around with hearing aids at the age of four. And I think that should have been my son. You know, I think like three and a half years ago, when I think of three and a half years of not hearing properly and struggling to speak, and I just have to say, and I do, I say that it's really okay. It took me a few months to get to that point. I had a lot of self-blame, but fortunately, that process was so long to getting to hearing aids that I had a lot of time to just say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. So I think I found your answer. You did answer me in the end. <laughs> I think for, for what the advice is for professionals, which is my biggest message from this entire project of the All About Audiology podcast, which is to listen to parents you know, from the professional side, the parent is the expert on their child. They're the one who was there the minute they were born or as soon as they received them into their home, right? They are the ones 24 seven in the middle of the night, on the weekends and all the time. And you, you know, a speech therapist who has three hours a week, that's a very intensive and important three hours a week where a lot can get done, but that's three hours out of a whole week where, you know, the parents are getting all the rest of those hours. And as also audiologists who, where we're doing diagnostic testing and we need to very quickly assess if this child's going to participate in our testing, busting out the stickers and the bubbles and the everything to try and get a rapport in 14 seconds. Like, listen, listen, listen to what parents say, how they're, how they're experiencing everything. So I'm going to bring that. I actually do have a little something to add to that. Sure. Summed up. And that is, I would say, Make the time to develop a rapport with a child. It's really almost impossible for a child to want to work with you. Like I was saying about parenting, everything's so much easier when there's a relationship and then your children want to listen to you. I've been in so many assessment situations with my son where the demand for him to do something, we didn't, he didn't know what was being expected. He didn't know who the person was and why they were asking it. And many times he has not shown what he really knows because he just kind of shuts down or gets resistant. And I feel that taking the time to look the child in the eye, to smile, hi, what's your name? Introduce yourself. I'm Aviva, and this is what we're going to do today. And like really build that relationship. Take the time for rapport. People sometimes feel, but we're, we don't have time for rapport. We've got to get this done. But everything goes faster. You don't not have time for rapport because when you skip that step, you spend all your time and resistant behavior and like trying to coax the child and that's not fun or productive for anybody. Mm -hmm. One of the tests that we do is tympanometry where we have a, a little earpiece that goes in the ear and the child needs to be still for 
two and a half seconds. That's how long it takes in each year. And it can take two and a half seconds or it can take four minutes, seven minutes, 10 minutes, seven times that we're trying it. And it's so, so clear that the whole like dynamic between the tester, the parent and the child, if that's like in balance, then the child, you know, like you said, feels safe. They'll just like, okay, I, I don't know who this lady is, but I'm in my mother's arms and she's hugging me. She's holding my arms, but gently, you know, that, that's a totally different kid than someone who just like takes a really big grip on their kid. And then the audiologist tries to shove something in their ear and like, you're not going to get a good result. You're going to have to keep trying and keep trying. And meanwhile, the kid is kicking and screaming. I once had a not an audiology-related example, but it was a pretty powerful example of this idea when I once had to take my son, who was probably six at the time, almost six. Something had gotten in his eye, and my pediatrician said, take him to the emergency room because there were no um, eye doctors for pediatrics available. And we got there at the end of someone's shift who clearly had no patience, no tolerance, and looked at him with disgust. And he was so, he was, they had four adults holding him down to flush out his eyes with saline. And it was pretty horrible. And then she said, well, until I can like just, it was a, like a second to take this little strip and touch it to his eye or something, he wouldn't let her do it. We were there for hours. And finally I said, when she walked out of the room, there was a very pleasant other ophthalmologist. I said, would you be able to do this? He right away came over, looked him in the eye and say, hi, the kind of, hi buddy, how you doing? My son, he did it. One second later, it was done. We were there for hours with this person who I felt she had created this power struggle. He felt she didn't like him. Now, would she say she didn't like him? I don't know. She was tired. She was stressed. She was tense. It could have had nothing to do with him. But he was feeling unsafe with that person and disconnected. He wanted to do uncomfortable things that scared him to him, and he wanted no part of it. And yet, doing the same thing with someone he met two minutes before and it was finished so it's not the time that it takes it's just having the relationship that really makes that difference yeah and and for parents if there's someone that doesn't make you feel comfortable you do not need to go back to them there are other hospitals there are other audiologists there are other doctors if we didn't get into this you know if, if our professionals don't get into helping professions to help then what are we doing or if they lose it, they got into help and they got worn down by the day-to-day -day demands and person after person. And like we said, you know, in the beginning, we start our day and we're not always bringing our best. It's our, the best we can do, but it doesn't look like our best because we're tired or grumpy or financial troubles or interpersonal things. And they're people too. And sometimes they lose sight of what they're really there for. Aviva, thank you so much for coming on to the All About Audiology podcast. If people would like to learn more about you or your work, where can they find you? You can find me online at avivawarner.com. That's A-V-I-V-A-H-W-E-R-N-E-R. I've been blogging. I have about 2,000 articles in the archive. I have tons of topics I've written about, and I love hearing from my blog readers. If people want to connect with me privately, if they're feeling challenged, I have a free consultation that I offer, an initial, cons initial consultation. No obligation, no strings attached. It's just my way of helping people. And if people feel they want to follow that up later on, great. If not, that's really fine. So they can find that information on my website as well. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you. And we wish all the best for all of your children. <laughs> Thank you very much. Such a pleasure to speak to you. That interview was so incredible and meant so much to me because as you guys know, if you've been following the podcast, 
what I do, what my passion is, it's leading parents through this hearing loss journey. It's something that I believe is missing in a lot of cases where the audiologist has a lot to do. The audiologist has to do all the testing and getting children involved with learning how to throw the block in the bucket or the lights, you know, and two audiologists working together even to get um, reliable results from young children. And then if there's fitting appointments, all the things that go into setting the hearing aid, programming and and teaching you how to do the mold and all the things that you actually need to know in the practical sense with cochlear implants lots of mapping appointments and making sure all the different parts and components are working so there's just a lot going on in the clinical appointment and i believe that audiologists have this other role and many times we want to serve our patients and we want to help you but there's just not enough time within the context of the appointments so that's why i offer informational and educational counseling for parents in a virtual setting online one-on-one or in a group and it's something that i truly truly believe in because it also incorporates the parents experience of what's been going on and acceptance of the diagnosis that you know things like this that come in a circle it isn't just stages that you go you know through um, acceptance and denial and anger and bargaining and all the things that happen when you're faced with a difficulty not only grieving in the sense of mourning um, when there's a death but also when there's a change in the understanding and the expectation of what your life is going to be like as a parent or who your child is. So when there's all of that happening, there's space and room to get support. To learn more about that, visit allaboutaudiology.com hope and you can get all the details on the service over there. Of course, you can always DM me on Instagram at allaboutaudiologypodcast and come join the Facebook group all about audiology. I'm so glad you're here and thank you to Aviva for a wonderful interview. I can't wait to hear what you thought of this episode, so definitely send me a note, email me through the contact link on the website, Instagram, Facebook. I'm here for you guys and I can't wait to hear your thoughts for our All About You episode. I'm Dr. Lila Saperstein and this is the All About Audiology podcast.